0: Father, you are sovereign over us. Those words are at times easy to sing, and yet we fail to live appropriately in response to them. And God, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts and minds, that we would not just say those words, but we would truly believe that and live in response to it. God, we pray that we would speak, that we would act and behave and live for you in such a way that testifies to the fact that we believe you are sovereign over us, that even what the enemy intends for evil, you are able to use and to work for good. God, help us to see that, to know that, to believe that. May you be honored in this time. May you speak through your word. God, refine us and sharpen us, make us more like Christ. And we pray it in his good and precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated and please open once again as we continue on in our journey through the book of Revelation. Please open to Revelation chapter 11. Chapter 11. As you already know, followers of Christ, followers of Jesus are called many different things in the Bible. We are called ambassadors for Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, we are called Jesus' sheep, Jesus' flock in John chapter 10. We are called a temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6. We are referred to as the body and as the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. We are described as a family in 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Peter, Two nine we are said to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, and In Acts chapter one, Jesus tells his followers, his disciples, that we will be His witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And brothers and sisters, this makes sense. When you think about God's work throughout redemptive history, this is in harmony. This is in line with who God is and with what God does. Please note it on your outline. God is consistent. God is Faithful God is good to commission, empower, and send witnesses. Witnesses who will speak and testify to His plan, to His righteousness, to His grace, and to His character. To who He really and truly is. Think of Enoch. <laughs> Back in the book of Genesis, think of Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and so many more who spoke and testified to the trustworthiness of God, to the truthfulness of God, to the righteousness of God, to the grace of God, to the justice of God. God does not leave humanity in the dark. He does not leave himself without witnesses who testify to who he is, to what he has done and to what he will yet do in the future. And what's really interesting is that as we come to the New Testament, that Greek word translated as witness is where we get our English word, martyr. We've basically stolen that word from the Greek language. Please note this on your outline. In the New Testament, a faithful witness would often become a martyr for Christ. From what we read in Acts chapter 7, we often call Stephen the first martyr of the church and he was the first to die for his faith in christ but he was certainly not the first witness there were other witnesses who came before him who spoke and testified to the power of christ and to the grace of god but stephen does rightly show us the boldness the strength the kindness and the love that a witness for christ is supposed to have Remember that as Stephen was being stoned and murdered for his faith in Christ, he called out in Acts 7.60 saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And brothers and sisters, he fell asleep because Christians do not die we nap. We nap. We we do not die. Stephen was not dead in any kind of final sense. He was very much so alive in the presence of God, and God would one day resurrect or wake up his sleeping body. And years later, when the Apostle Paul was recounting this specific this, this specific event, because remember, Paul was present at the stoning of Stephen. Paul was present approving of his murder and watching over the garments of those who were killing Stephen. Paul uh, himself testifying now before an angry mob Paul talked about his conversion. Paul talked about his unworthiness to be in Christ. And he recalls a time when he said this to God. And remember, Paul is saying this to an angry mob who is eager to kill him. And yet Paul recounts a time when he said this to God. In Acts 22, verse 20, he said, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, literally your martyr, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him and like Stephen Paul would be a faithful witness would be a faithful martyr to Christ now earlier in our study of the book of revelation when we were studying the seven letters to the seven churches we saw this same reality when Jesus said to the church in pergamum quote i know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Again, literally, my faithful martyr who was killed among you. So, Antipas, like Paul, like Stephen, had been a faithful witness and martyr for Christ. And later, in the book of Revelation, when we eventually get to chapter 17, John will see, listen, John will see all of the false religions, all of the false religious systems of the world, pictured and personified as a wicked woman riding a beast. And here's how John will see that. Here's how John will describe that in Revelation 17.6. He says this, "...and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, the blood of the witnesses of Jesus." Brothers and sisters, this reminds us that the unbelieving world was glad to kill Christ, and it will be glad to kill his followers. It will be glad to try and silence those who speak for him. And Jesus, he prepared us for us, for this. He, he prepared his disciples for this reality where he told them plainly in John 15 saying, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And yet, even as you hear that, be careful. Don't jump to the wrong conclusion. In fact, I'm worried that some of you are already, and it's my fault because I chose this introduction, but I'm worried you're already going down the wrong line of thinking. So let me, let me spare you from something. Don't jump to the wrong conclusion. Listen, As we study Revelation chapter 11, as you hear everything that we just walked through, as strange as it sounds, it is at the same time the most safe and the most dangerous thing in the world to be a Christian to be a witness for Christ and his gospel. Listen, it is dangerous. We've already seen that. We've got glimpses of that. It is dangerous because the world will oppose you and the gospel as you share it. Satan would love to distract you and to silence you however he can. You stand in opposition to the world system that is racing towards destruction and yet you are at the same time safe and secure. In Christ, and we've we've already sung about it this morning. The Sovereign One who reigns over us, the Spirit of God lives in you, filling you, empowering you. You are loved and held and protected in the Father's hand. The Sovereign King of the universe has set His love and His affection upon you. Now, I say all of that to say this. In Revelation chapter 11, we will see two things related to all of this. Number one, we will see John commissioned by God to measure a temple. And then, number two, we will see God commission two witnesses, two unique chosen witnesses to represent Him on earth during this time of judgment and tribulation. And while I think... And I'll just tip my hand and throw all my cards out on the table here. While I think that this chapter looks forward to a real literal temple and to real literal witnesses, I think these verses also have serious and important application for us today as we are called to be witnesses for Christ right here and right now. So, let's get to it. The first thing we see is a measured temple Look at verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> John writes, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two years." months. Now, believe it or not, this is good. And we should not just skip these verses because I know some of you are thinking, no, we want to get to the witnesses. Let's get to the good part. Let's get to the witnesses. You don't want to do that. You don't want to skip these opening verses. These are significant. These are important. We will get to the witnesses in, in, in just a moment. But this chapter and this section begins with the word Then. So please note this on your outline. The opening word then connects this chapter back to chapter 10. And let me just pause there for for a moment. If you missed last week, you need to go back and listen online. I am so thankful for what our brother Matt preached last week. It was so good and and helpful, uh, informative, and yet embracing what the text says about what we can know and what we cannot know. So this morning, I want to build off of that. And so if you missed last week, that's okay. We got it online. You can go back and enjoy that. But this then connects us to chapter 10 to the mighty angel, to the small bittersweet scroll, to God's message to John that he must continue to prophesy. That's your fill in the blank. Continue to prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And so guess what we see in chapter 11? We see John continuing to prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And in doing that, in doing that, we see a distinction. A distinction between what is holy, what is unholy. We see a distinction between those who receive the favor of God and those who remain opposed to God and distant from God. We see a distinction between two witnesses who will speak for God and an unbelieving world that rejects the truth and can't wait to be rid of these witnesses. So God is continuing to use John. God is continuing to show John what will happen in the future as God accomplishes his plan to bring about justice, to make all things new, to glorify Christ as the heir of all things. But obviously we're still left with the question, what's the deal with the measuring? Why is John here told to measure the temple and not just the temple, but he's told to measure the altar and those who worship there? Well, obviously... God does not tell John to measure these things because God is looking for numbers, because God is looking for actual measurements, because you will notice that John never reports back to God. God uh, John never comes back and says, all right, mission accomplished. You, want, you don't know how big the temple is? This wall was like... 20 feet long. I know John wouldn't use feet and inches, but just go with me. This is like 20 feet long, and I, I measured the altar, yep, three and a half feet tall, and, and I even measured, I did what you said, guy measured all the worshipers, and that guy was like 5'11", and that lady was like 5'6", and, and you know, I, we never get that. We never get numbers reported back to us. God is not looking for numbers. He's not looking for information. So what is this measuring all about? Note it on your outline: Often when God has something measured, He is setting it apart for His purposes. He is emphasizing that it belongs to him. He is making preparations. For either blessing or destruction. See, listen. You measure what belongs to you. It would be so weird if I walked into your house with a measuring tape and I started to measure your curtains and I started to measure your couch and I measured your TV and I was measuring your sofa and your bed. What are you doing? What What are you doing? You don't You don't deserve that kind of knowledge, right? God is signifying and designating what belongs to him. He is setting this apart for his purposes and for his favor. Now, you might be thinking, well, doesn't God own everything? Absolutely, he does. God owns everything. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And yet, God often sets things apart For his special purposes. For example, in the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi was set apart to be the priestly tribe. Various objects and tools were set apart in the temple for worship and for sacrifice. In Joshua chapter 6, the city of Jericho was devoted to destruction. It was set apart unto God for destruction. In the book of Ezekiel, in chapters 40 to 43, God calls Ezekiel, to measure the temple, similar to what we see here, to show that it had been set apart to receive blessing and favor and ultimately to reflect God's glory. And here in Revelation 11, as we go through the text, it becomes very clear that this measuring is a good thing. What is measured is holy to God. What is measured will receive the favor of God. And what is not measured... The outer court, sometimes called here the court of the Gentiles, it is clearly given over to defilement and to destruction. Again, look at verse 2. God says, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And so, having dealt a little bit, at least with the measuring aspect of it, we're still left with the question, what exactly is going on here? What is being described? What is this temple that all of a sudden now John is supposed to measure? And what is this holy city that is referred to that's going to be trampled for 42 months or three and a half years? Well, as you would imagine, there's a lot of debate surrounding this text and these verses and this temple. Please note it on your outline. Here's a summary of it. Number three on your outline. Some Christians see this reference to the temple as a reference to the church and the trampling as a reference to the persecution that believers face in this life. Other Christians interpret these verses in a more literal way and believe that this refers to a future literal temple and to a time when the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people will be oppressed and attacked. Now, that was long. That's a a mouthful, okay? Having said all of that, let me emphasize this again. This is an in-house discussion. This is a conversation that believers can and do and should have with each other. And let me say this, there are many sincere, diligent, smart, godly Christians and Bible scholars on both sides of this issue. In fact, some of my favorite people in the entire world do not agree with me on this issue. They're my favorite, some of my favorite people. People to read and to listen to. They're my favorite people. Some of the people that I am closest to, they, they don't agree with me on, on this issue. Um, at the end of the day, every believer should prayerfully study and examine the text. Every believer should weigh what is presented and eventually land somewhere on this issue. And in glory, we will find out that I was right all along. So, I'm just kidding. I... Maybe not. Uh, And as I look at the text, as I examine what we see here in light of the rest of God's word, it is true. Listen, it is true that the church and individual believers are referred to as the temple of God. Amen. And as the temple of the Holy Spirit, that is absolutely true. And yet I do think what we see here refers to a future literal temple and then I think what we'll see following that are two actual witnesses that God will raise up to speak for him. What I think we see here makes sense with what we read in passages like Romans 11 and other places where God will one day save, rescue, deliver Israel, fulfill promises, specific promises that he's made to them. I think this verse, this passage makes sense with what we see with the rest of Revelation and in the book of Daniel that described the eventual coming of a charismatic world leader who will be the final expression of Antichrist, who will promise peace, who will supposedly help the Jewish people, who will even perhaps help to rebuild them a temple, but who will ultimately betray them and promote himself to be God. I think what we read here sets the stage and, and provides some of the theological underpin for what is predicted, for what we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, where Paul writes this, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, meaning the final coming of the Lord, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. But of course, his reign, his seat in the temple will not last. Because Paul also writes in verse 8 that Jesus will ultimately destroy this man of lawlessness. Jesus will destroy this one who opposes him with the breath of his mouth. So I think there will be a future temple in Israel, but whether or not you believe these verses refer to an actual temple or not, what I think we all should see and can see in principle here is that these opening verses are setting the stage for conflict. I repeat, these opening verses are setting the stage for conflict, for the conflict that always arises between truth and error, between the way of life and the way of death. Please note this on your outline. In principle, these verses teach and remind us that God is rescuing. God is saving a people for himself. God measures. God knows. God cherishes his children. And even in a hostile world, he will not be left without witnesses. Witnesses who speak and testify to his grace, his glory, his righteousness. And so while God measures... While God knows, while God cherishes His people and His plan, the world does not. And there is a trampling that is predicted here. There is a trampling that is spoken of in the holy city for 42 months. And again, if you interpret these verses in a more literal way, then you see this as referring to a specific time of 42 months or three and a half years or 1,260 days. Now, I think this does refer to a specific time when the nation of Israel will be hated, maligned, betrayed. It's hard to imagine, right? no, no. From Haman in the book of Esther, to Hitler in the Holocaust, to Hamas today. Satan has been desperate to destroy, to deceive, and to exterminate the people of promise. And in today's climate, it is not hard to imagine world powers who are eager to trample upon and to destroy Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, the rise of anti Semitism that we have seen just in these recent weeks, it is shocking and it is tragic. And so as we look at Revelation 11, we move then, we must move then, from a measuring, we move now to an announcement of conflict and oppression, we move now to two witnesses that God will raise up because right on the heels of verse 2 comes verse 3, which which says this, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Here we are introduced to these two witnesses who are given authority from God to prophesy for 1,260 days or three and a half years. They will wear sackcloth. This tells us something about the nature of their ministry, tells us about the nature of their speaking and the nature of their message. So here's what I want to do. I want to simply read now verses 4 to 14 in in its entirety. And then we're going to quickly unpack five things that we see about these two witnesses. And as we unpack that, We will see principles and truths, brothers and sisters, that benefit us today. That are so relevant and important for us today. Look again at verse 4. We read, These, these two witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Two witnesses. Here we see their identity, their protection their power, their ministry, and then lastly, their defeat, which leads to ultimate victory. So first of all, their identity. Who are these two witnesses? Well, verse 4 tells us exactly who they are. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees. And the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So please note it on your outline. Their identity is very simple. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord. Now, I'm good at this Bible prophecy thing, right? I mean, I just, I just answered the question for you. Anybody ever asked you, who are the two witnesses from Revelation 11? You tell them, they're the two lampstands. Conversation over. no. What does that mean? I mean, we—that that is not terminology and imagery that we are accustomed to. What does this mean? Don't let me lose you. This is a fascinating picture that comes to us from the book of Zechariah, chapter 4. Okay, don't let me lose you. Listen. During the days of the prophet Zechariah, after a time of exile... God was restoring Israel to the land and God was specifically using two men to help accomplish his purposes Zerubbabel one was Zerubbabel great Fun name to say. Name your next child Zerubbabel. Who was he? He was a governor. He was a political leader. And there was another man, Joshua the high priest. Joshua the high priest. Together, they were beginning to rebuild the temple and to call the people to repentance. God had already used Zerubbabel, to lay the foundation for the temple. And you can read about it in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 9. And God was using Joshua the high priest to teach the people, to humble the people, to call the people back to humility and repentance before God. And these two men are pictured in Zechariah as being, you guessed it, two lampstands that receive oil from the olive trees. Now, you might... tempted to hear all of that and say well who cares and why does any of this matter well i'll tell you this is very significant and very important because this picture used in Zechariah and in revelation it reveals to us where true power is found where true grace is found and it is relevant for us. Where does the power come from for Zerubbabel to lead the people and for Joshua the high priest to call the people to repentance? Where does the power come from for these two witnesses to stand before the world and to testify for God? Where does the power come from for us to be ambassadors for Christ? Zechariah 4.6 says this, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace. Grace to it. The work of Zerubbabel, the work of Joshua the high priest was what? It was a testimony to the Spirit of God and to the grace of God. The work of these two witnesses in Revelation 11 is a testimony to the Spirit of God and to the work of God and our work, all that we do for the kingdom of God, to glorify Christ, to express our gratitude back unto Him It is a testimony to His grace and to His Spirit. So who are these two witnesses? They are two lampstands, meaning they are tools in God's hand. They are vessels of His grace and His Spirit and His power. And they are appointed to stand before Him, to represent Him in His Lordship, in His authority and in His sovereignty on earth. Now, many, if you've studied this, if you have a really cool study Bible, you already know that this is coming. Many have tried to assign specific names and identities to these two witnesses. Many thoughtful, smart, Bible scholars and commentators have said that these two witnesses are the church or these two witnesses are the church in Israel or these two witnesses represent the word of God. Or these two witnesses are Elijah or Enoch or Moses or Peter or Paul. Or that these two witnesses come in the spirit of, in the likeness of, in the power of Elijah or Enoch or Moses or Peter or Paul. Or these two witnesses are just two normal, unknown believers who may or may not be a part of the 144,000 mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. Brothers and sisters, the fact is... We cannot say for sure. There, there are not two specific names and identities given here. Revelation 11 does not give us a specific name, but what we can say is that these two witnesses are lampstands. They are tools in the hands of a mighty, sovereign, gracious King. He will use them to be lights for His glory. Now, Consider this next, their protection. Please note this on your outline, their protection. Here we see fire consumes anyone and everyone who tries to harm them or kill them. And that—that that is amazing. Verse 5 is an astounding verse. Every time I read it, it is, it is incredible. It tells us that if anyone tries to harm or kill these two witnesses, they are killed and consumed with Fire that comes from the mouth of these witnesses. This is similar. It is similar. To what we see in 2 Kings chapter 1, where Elijah calls down fire from heaven on those who come to arrest him. This is one reason, by the way, that many believe that perhaps one of these witnesses is is Elijah or associated with Elijah. Another reason for that is because of Malachi chapter 4, which talks about a coming of Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. But the point is this, God protects his witnesses. God perfectly protects His witnesses. For as long as God has ministry and work for them to do, they are invincible. For as long as God wants them on earth here during these three and a half years, they are untouchable. Fire. Anytime, every time, someone tries to kill them or attack them. And brothers and sisters, You may be wowed by that. You may be awed by that. There's a sense in which I think we should, but I want to ask you a question. Does God care less for you than He does for these two witnesses? He does not. He does not. Should this text give us courage and boldness to speak for the Lord, to live for the Lord to act as His hands and feet? Yes, I think it should. Listen, if the Lord does not return in our lifetime, there will come a day when Jesus calls each one of us home, just as there was a time when the work of these two witnesses was finished. But until that time, brothers and sisters, until that time, God has a plan to use you for His glory, to use us for His glory. God has a plan to empower us and to ultimately bring us safely home to Him. As long as we draw breath, we should say with King David in Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. And delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Be bold. Be strong in the Lord. Take refuge in the God who is sovereign over your life and death. Next, with these two witnesses, we also see their power. Their power. Please note this on your outline. They stop rain. Turn water to blood and unleash a variety of plagues. Verse 6 identifies these three things very clearly. They can stop rain like Elijah did in 1 Kings 17 during the days of wicked King Ahab. They can turn water to blood like Moses did in Egypt in Exodus chapter 7. They can unleash a variety of plagues on the earth, and they can do this, according to verse 6, as often as they desire. That's significant. That will garner some attention from a watching, rebellious world. That along with fire consuming the enemies of those who would try to kill or harm Prophets, That's true. And listen, again, we may hear all of that and we may feel very small. We may hear all of that and wrongly think, well, compared to these two witnesses, what am I? I can't stop rain. Last time I checked, I've never turned water into blood. I can't unleash even one plague on the earth, much less a variety. Fire has never come out of my mouth to consume any enemies, and to that I would say, don't you dare play the comparison game. Don't you dare underestimate what God has entrusted to you right here, right now, for His glory in this time. Paul, writing in Second Corinthians 10.4, tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have divine power to do what? To destroy arguments to bring people to a true and right understanding of Christ and to His gospel. Paul would write again in 2 Timothy one seven, saying, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, in response to that, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner. Now look at what Paul writes next. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We have power for what? Power to love, power to grow, power to persevere, power to suffer for the gospel so that others may know and love and trust Jesus. These two witnesses, listen, they are faithful to use what God has entrusted to them We need to take God's call on our life just as seriously. Next, their ministry. Please note it on your outline, their ministry. They wear sackcloth, prophesy, and preach repentance. Now, wearing sackcloth, that is a statement of mourning. It is a symbol of lament. It often accompanies repentance. It represents the need for repentance. And in this way, and I, I tell you this joyfully. I tell you this happily. I tell you this hoping that this is not new information to you. Um, these two witnesses simply continue the ministry of Jesus Christ. They, they don't have a new gospel. They don't have a new ministry. They, they continue the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ to preach repentance. Did you know that the first words out of the mouth of Jesus in Mark's gospel is a proclamation to repent and believe? We read this in Mark 1.15. Jesus says, "...the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand." Repent and believe in the Gospel. Repent and believe. Turn from sin to trust in Jesus. Trust in the good news that Jesus is. Trust in the news of His life, death, burial, and resurrection for you. Stop resting in your own goodness. Stop believing in your own goodness. And rest in what Christ has done. Believe that His death, it is sufficient for you. It is sufficient to cover all of your sins. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot accomplish this. Rest in the One who died to cover your sins, who rose to give you His righteousness. Believe that this is what God desires of you and in you. These witnesses, they wear sackcloth. They are a continual testimony to the world that, yes, God is holy, sin is deadly, and repentance and faith are necessary. The text also says that these witnesses will prophesy. What will they prophesy? I'd like to think they start in Revelation chapter 11. I'd like to think these two witnesses stand up and say, Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 11. We're going to start there and work our way out. What do these witnesses preach? Revelation, the truth, the revealing of Jesus Christ. They proclaim it again and again and again, calling people to repent and to believe. No doubt they will prophesy and preach and explain the book of Revelation, warning of what is yet to come. And brothers and sisters, again, not to oversimplify things, but our ministry is similar to this. Like Jesus, like these two witnesses, we need to explain again and again and again that repentance and faith are indeed necessary. That we come to one who is good. That we come to one who is willing to receive all who come to Him in faith. It might not be popular, but it is good and it is necessary and God will use it to bring people to Himself. Lastly, we need to consider their defeat. Their defeat, which leads to their ultimate victory. Please note it on your outline. They are killed, resurrected, and then taken to glory. These two witnesses are unstoppable. They are invincible until they're not. Until their ministry is complete. And God chooses to bring them to glory. Verse 7 says so plainly, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Eventually their ministry will come to an end, as all of our ministries will come to an end. Here, theirs last three and a half years, and God then allows Satan and his forces, the beast. And yes, we'll talk more about the beast in weeks to come in chapter 13, especially, but beyond that. And yes, in case you were counting, this is the first reference to the beast in in the book of Revelation. But the point is, God allows Satan to kill these two witnesses and the world will rejoice. But the world rejoices. These two troublemakers are dead. These preachers of repentance that talked about sin, that troubled people's consciences, they're gone. It's time to throw a party. It's time to send gifts and flowers to each other to commemorate dead witness day. Thank the beast. They're finally gone. That's the response. That's the reaction from the world. According to verses 8 and 9, The world will just let their bodies lie in the street in Jerusalem for three and a half days. And here, Jerusalem in the text is described as a wretched place. In verse 8, it is symbolically called here, Sodom and Egypt. Jerusalem is now a lot like Sodom. It is a place of vast sin. It is like Egypt. It It is a place of intense slavery. Here, the text also identifies that it is the place where the Lord Jesus was crucified. But, as you well know, this is a short-lived celebration. It is always a short-lived celebration for the forces of evil. There is no lasting joy found here. There is no lasting victory found here. After three and a half days, God resurrects His two witnesses. He breathes His life into them. Terror fills the world as they watch these two defeated witnesses now rise to their feet and stand and ultimately God calls them back into heaven verse 12 says that the enemies who were so glad to see them dead now stand terrified as they watch them ascend into heaven and when they ascend into heaven the text says in that hour an earthquake strikes the city and because of this earthquake a tenth of the city is destroyed seven thousand people die Again, there is no lasting joy. There is no lasting victory for those who remain opposed to God and opposed to the people of God. And yet, I think there is a possible word of hope, maybe even a word of great hope, at the end of verse 13. In verse 13, we read, 7,000 people were were killed in the earthquake, and the rest, perhaps the rest of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, admittedly, I do not want to read too much into that one phrase, but could it be that God will use this event to finally bring so many rebellious, those who are resistant to him, to him, Perhaps God will use this moment and this event. Could it be that this will be the fruit, some of the fruit from these witnesses' ministry, that there is ultimately a group, perhaps a very large group, who comes to fear God and to glorify Him? We cannot say with absolute certainty, but what we can say with certainty is this. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Brothers and sisters, today is a day of grace. Today you are called. If you are in Christ, you are called to be a witness for Him. You are called to testify and to speak to what you know to be true of His life, death, burial, and resurrection. You are called to speak of what you know to be true of His grace and of His future return today is the best day to trust in Jesus today is the perfect day to proclaim the glories of his grace and his goodness why because god knows how to save his people he knows how to deliver and to protect his people he knows how to bring his children his witnesses safely home to glory and that includes you if you are in christ Let's pray. Gracious Father, we ask that we would never forget the realities and the truths that we see reflected in this passage. God, we pray that we would be those who are faithful witnesses, who do not shrink away from saying what we know to be true of you God, we thank you that in love and grace and mercy you sent your Son to be our Savior and may we live rightly in response to that. God, if there's someone here today or watching online or listening at some future point in time who is distant from you, estranged from you, rebellious to you, God, please soften their heart and soften their mind. Help them to understand your goodness in Christ that they may come and humble faith and repentance and find true life and freedom in Jesus. God, I pray that we would leave this place resolved to live for Your honor and glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.